Hello, this is R.J. Deacon, reading the Supreme Court of the United States per curiam opinion in Sexton versus Beaudreau on petition for the writ of certiori to the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, decided June 28, 2018. Again, per curiam opinion, no syllabus. In this case, the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit reversed a denial of federal habeas relief on the ground that the state court had unreasonably rejected respondents' claim of ineffective assistance of counsel. The Court of Appeals' decision ignored well-established principles. It did not consider reasonable grounds that could have supported the state court's summary decision, and it analyzed respondents' arguments without any meaningful deference to the state court. Accordingly, the petition for certiori is granted, and the judgment of the Court of Appeals is reversed. Respondent Nicholas Beaudreau shot and killed Wayne Drummond during a late-night argument in 2006. Deo Esho and Brandon Crowder were both witnesses to the shooting. The next day, Crowder told the police that he knew the shooter from middle school, but did not know the shooter's name. Esho described the shooter, but also did not know his name. Seventeen months later, Crowder was arrested for an unrelated crime. While Crowder was in custody, police showed him a middle school yearbook with Beaudreau's picture, as well as a photo lineup including Beaudreau. Crowder identified Beaudreau as the shooter in the Drummond murder. Officers interviewed Esho the next day. They first spoke with him during his lunch break. They showed him a display that included a recent picture of Beaudreau and pictures of five other men. Esho tentatively identified Beaudreau as the shooter saying his picture was closest to the gunman. Later that day, one of the officers found another photograph of Beaudreau that was taken closer to the date of the shooting. Beaudreau looked different in the two photographs. In the first, his face was a little wider and his head was a little higher. Between four and six hours after the first interview, the officers returned to show Esho a second six-man photo lineup which contained the older picture of Beaudreau. Beaudreau's photo was in a different position in the lineup than it had been in the first one. Esho again identified Beaudreau as the shooter, telling officers the second picture was very close. But he, again, declined to positively state that Beaudreau was the shooter. Esho was hesitant because there were a few things he remembered about the shooter that would require seeing him in person. At a preliminary hearing, Esho identified Beaudreau as the shooter. At trial, Esho explained that it clicked when he saw Beaudreau in person, based on the way that he walked. After seeing him in person, Esho was sure that Beaudreau was the shooter. At no time did any investigator or prosecutor suggest to Esho that Beaudreau was the one who shot Drummond. Beaudreau was tried in 2009 for first-degree murder and attempted second-degree robbery. Esho and Crowder both testified against Beaudreau and both identified him as Drummond's shooter. The jury found Beaudreau guilty and the trial court sentenced him to a term of 50 years to life. Beaudreau's conviction was affirmed on direct appeal and his first state habeas petition was denied. In 2013, Beaudreau filed a second state habeas petition. He claimed, among other things, that his trial attorney was 
ineffective for failing to file a motion to suppress Esho's identification testimony. The California Court of Appeal summarily denied the petition, and the California Supreme Court denied review. Petitioner then filed a federal habeas petition, which the district court denied. A divided panel of the Ninth Circuit reversed. The panel majority spent most of its opinion con conducting a de novo analysis of the merits of the would-be suppression motion, relying in part on arguments and theories that Beaudreau had not presented to the state court in his second state habeas petition. It first determined that the council's failure to file the suppression motion constituted deficient performance. The circumstances surrounding Esho's pretrial identification were unduly suggestive, according to the Ninth Circuit, because only Bedrew's picture was in both photo lineups. And relying on Ninth Circuit precedent, the panel majority found that the preliminary hearing was unduly suggestive as well. Quoting Johnson versus Sublet, the panel majority next concluded that under the totality of the circumstances, Esho's identification was not reliable enough to overcome the suggestiveness of the procedures. The panel majority then determined that counsel's failure to file the suppression motion prejudiced Beaudreau. Given the weakness of the state's case, after conducting this de novo analysis of Beaudreau's ineffectiveness claim, the panel majority asserted that the state court's denial of this claim was not just wrong, but objectively unreasonable under 2254D. Judge Gould dissented. He argued that the state court could have reasonably concluded that Beaudreau had failed to prove prejudice. The state of California petitioned for certiorari. Under the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, a federal court cannot grant habeas relief with respect to any claim that was adjudicated on the merits in state court proceedings unless adjudication of the claim resulted in a decision that was contrary to or involved in unreasonable application of clearly established federal law, as determined by this court or a decision that was based on an unreasonable determination of the facts in light of the evidence presented in the state court proceeding, 2254D, when, as here, there is no reasoned state court decision on the merits, the federal court must determine what arguments or theories could have supported the state court's decision, and then it must ask whether it is possible fair-minded jurists could disagree that those arguments or theories are inconsistent with the holding in a prior decision of this court. Harrington v. Richter. If such disagreement is possible, then the petitioner's claim must be denied. We have often emphasized that this standard is difficult to meet, because it was meant to be. Burt v. Tilt Low. The Ninth Circuit failed to properly apply this standard. To prove ineffective assistance of counsel, a petitioner must demonstrate both deficient performance and prejudice. Strickland. The state court's denial of relief in this case was not an unreasonable application of Strickland. A fair-minded jurist could conclude that counsel's performance was not deficient because counsel reasonably could have determined that the motion to suppress would have failed. See Primo v. Moore. This court has previously described the approach 
appropriately used to determine whether the due process clause requires suppression of an eyewitness identification tainted by police arrangement, Perry versus New Hampshire. In particular, the court has said that due process concerns arise only when law enforcement officers used an identification procedure that is both suggestive and unnecessary. Citing Manson versus Braithwaite and uh, Neal versus Biggers. To be impermissibly suggestive, the procedure must give rise to a very substantial likelihood of irreparable misidentification, quoting Simmons versus United States. It is not enough that the procedure may have in some respects fallen short of the ideal. Even when an unnecessary suggestive procedure was used to suppress, used suppression of the resulting identification is not the inevitable consequence. Perry. Instead, the due process clause requires courts to assess on a case-by-case basis whether improper police conduct created a substantial likelihood of misidentification. Uh, Figures. Reliability of the eyewitness identification is the linchpin of that evaluation. Perry. The factors affecting reliability include the opportunity of the witness to view the criminal at the time of the crime, the witness's degree of attention to the accuracy of his prior description of the criminal, the level of certainty demonstrated at the confrontation, and the time between the crime and the confrontation. This court has held that pre-trial identification procedures violated the due process clause only once in Foster v. California. There, the police used two highly suggestive lineups and one-to-one confrontation, which made it all but inevitable that the witness would identify the defendant. In this case, there is at least one theory that could have led a fair-minded jurist to conclude that the suppression motion would have failed. See Richter. The state court could have reasonably concluded that the Baudreau, that Baudreau failed to prove that under the totality of the circumstances, the identification was not reliable. Biggers. Baudreau's claim was facially deficient because his state habeas petition failed to even address this requirement, and the state court could have reasonably concluded that the totality of the circumstances tipped against Baudreau. True, Esho gave a vague initial description of the shooter. See Manson. Noting the detailed physical description the witness gave minutes after, and there was a 17-month delay between the shooting and the identification, see Biggers, determining that a lapse of seven months would be a seriously negative factor in most cases. That's Biggers again. But, as the district court found, Esho had a good opportunity to view the shooter. Having talked to Baudreau immediately after the shooting, He also was paying attention during the crime, and even remembered Baudru's distinctive walk. Esho demonstrated a high overall level of certainty in his identification. He chose Baudru's picture in both photo lineups, and he was sure about his identification once he saw Baudru in person. There also was little pressure on Esho to make a particular identification. See Manson. It would 
not have been objectively unreasonably to the way the totality of the circumstances against Beaudru, White versus Woodall. The Ninth Circuit's opinion was not just wrong, it also committed fundamental errors that this court has repeatedly admonished courts to avoid. First, the Ninth Circuit effectively inverted the rule established in Richter. Instead of considering the arguments or theories that could have supported the state court's summary decision, the Ninth Circuit considered the arguments against the state court's decision that Beaudru never even made in his state habeas petition. Additionally, the Ninth Circuit failed to assess Beaudru's ineffectiveness claim with the appropriate amount of deference. The Ninth Circuit essentially evaluates the merits de novo, only tacking on a perfunctory statement at the end of its analysis asserting that the state court's decision was unreasonable. But deference to the state court should have been near its apex in this case, which involves a Strickland claim based on a motion that turns on general, fact-driven standards, such as suggestiveness and reliability. The Ninth Circuit's analysis did not follow this court's repeated holding that the more general the rule, the more leeway state courts have. Renico versus Lett. Nor did it follow this court's precedence stating that because the Strickland standard is a general standard, a state court has even more latitude to reasonably determine that a defendant has not satisfied that standard. Knowles versus Mirzaeans. The Ninth Circuit's essentially de novo analysis disregarded this deferential standard. The petition for writ of certiori and respondent's motion to proceed in form of pauperis are granted. The judgment of the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit is reversed, and the case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. Uh, Justice Breyer dissents. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to join a discussion about this or any of the other recent Supreme Court decisions, please find us at facebook.com slash slip.